Hello, curiosity seekers. Welcome to Dissecting Medical History. I'm Ange. I'm a travel nurse, medical history enthusiast, and your host. If you're looking for a storytelling formatted podcast with fun and fascinating topics on history and bios, then you are in the right spot. Please note this is not in any way medical advice. If you have anything that's ever discussed in any of the podcast episodes, please seek medical attention. Now, let's get this story started. Hello. Today's topic is the Kellogg brothers. The famous Kellogg brothers who invented the Kellogg's toasted cornflake. They are two very different famous brothers who spent a lifetime in discord, yet in some ways their lifelong battle helped them to become better, at least in their businesses. Today I have with me my friend Taylor, who joined me on my very first episode of The Executioners, and I want to welcome her back today for the Kellogg Brothers. Hi, Taylor. Hello, everyone. I'm glad to be back with Angie. (laughs) So since we've done our first episode together, this is like number 11 I've done in two over two months now which is amazing and have had almost 700 downloads, which is amazing. And hopefully, yeah, hopefully people are liking the podcast and hopefully we're, I'm doing things that people like and continue to listen. So today I wanted to do the Kellogg brothers because they're not a very well-known a couple of brothers. They, like I said, invented cornflakes. Dr. Kellogg was a man that was famous in his time. It was in the early 1900s and late eight, um, late of last century. And he was a very influential guy in the medical community. But his philosophies and whatnot, even though he was ahead of his time on a lot of things because he liked cutting edge, new research, he kind of got lost in the history a little bit. I, when I'm doing a lot of research, I don't really hear about him. He's not like he was, he wasn't inventing new things or doing new research. He was implementing these new researches. And his brother also not in the medical field, but he took that cereal that they invented together and kind of ran with it. They weren't, they weren't, they were close brothers because they worked really close together for a long time. They didn't have a happy relationship. (laughs) So you would think being so close and doing so much together, it would be, but it was a lifelong unhappy relationship. And they both lived until they were 91. So it was a long time to not like your family member. Yeah. So I had you watch that movie, the road to Wellville, right? So yes, if people are listening are familiar with that movie, the road to Wellville, it's a movie about Dr. Kellogg and his 
sanitarium. And I'm going to talk about that because that's a huge part of his life, huge part of Will's life, his brother, and it's medical. So the reason I had you watch it is because even though it's not completely accurate, there's a lot of accuracies to it in that the place and the person that was in the movie was Anthony Hopkins, um, was very much like the original John Harvey Kellogg, the doctor. Mm -hmm. And the brother wasn't in the movie. I originally was thinking he was, but it was his son. He did have a son like that, but he wasn't completely like that. Um, but well, I'm going to, I'm going to refer to the movie a lot because there are things in there that are so close. And I wanted you to get like that picture in your head of what he was like and what it was like at the sands. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So I'm going to just talk about the family, the, their childhood a little bit. John Preston Kellogg was their father. He moved the family from Massachusetts to Michigan. And I did a lot of research on the Kellogg's. And it's a lot. It's a lot. So it's really hard to pare it all down because there's so many great stories. But there is a book by Howard Markle that is really good. And I'm going to put those in the show notes for people to read if they want to learn more. So I'm just going like bare bones, like history, because <laughs> there's a lot. But basically, the father moved the family to Michigan, a Michigan territory in 1834 with his first wife, Mary Ann. They set up a farm. They had five children. Two of them died. Two of the girls died when they were teenagers. Um, Mary Ann later died of tuberculosis. Uh, then she even recommended the replacement to take care of her children. Her name was Ann Jeanette. She was 18 years old, and she had helped with the kids before because the mom was sick um, before, and so she had helped. And so the husband, John Preston, went out, brought her back, <laughs> married her, and they had 11 more children. She was very good at family, like raising the family. She was helpful in making that farm profitable. He ended up having the most, the most profitable farm in the county. Uh -huh. They were very charitable. They were religious. Um, they were very strong, had a very strong worth at work ethic, but they weren't very open with their affection. Hmm. Um, and Jeanette, she lost four of her children and became kind of distrustful of doctors. She was interested in hydrotherapy, though, so she subscribed to a magazine that did water cures. That was a growing industry at the time, a growing medical practice. Things were going farther away from like bloodletting and crazy toxic drugs, you know, like the quacks would give out and things. They were kind of more trying to be more natural. Um, they also were station agents with the Underground Railroad, helping several runaways uh, get to Canada. In 1856, the family got involved with the Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, the father moved the family away from the farm and ended up opening a brew manufacturing uh, in Battle Creek, Michigan. That's how they ended up in Battle Creek. Mm -hmm. They became full members of the church and they gave a lot of financial support. Like a lot. 
They were always raising money to work on the causes of the church. Okay, so John, he was the eldest of the boys. Uh, he was thought of as sickly when he was a kid because he was uh, he had tuberculosis and had bouts of that. He was very overprotected by his parents. They never wanted to take him very many places. Uh, he had several gastrointestinal disorders, which he found as a teenager was exasperated by fried foods and sugary treats. When he was 12, he got bloody colitis and had frequent constipation, that hemorrhoids, that pretty much he had to deal with the rest of his life. He ended up becoming obsessed with the GI tract. And that's kind of what spurred his practice. At 15, he developed an anal fissure, which you're a nurse, so you know it's, it's a tear in the rectum. Very painful. Yes. <laughs> but he had because he had the bouts of constipation, it kept reopening. So it would take months to heal, and it was extremely painful. And a lot of people that get anal fissures say it's like feels like barbed wire when they're having a bowel movement. Um, but John was a showman. He loved being in the spotlight. He played the violin, the organ, the piano. He would be a storyteller. Uh, he was homeschooled until he was 10. Uh, but he finally got to go. And when he got back, when he got to go to class, he was at the top of his class. He was able to read everything he can get his hands on. And then he would question and challenge things, not only at school, but in church. At 11, he worked at the broom factory and was very good at it. He also found that he was becoming round postured from the long hours. And he, on his own, decided to correct it by sleeping on a hardwood floor, which I guess helped. And posture became something that he was very concerned with later in years as well. Um, a huge influence on John was the leaders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, uh, the Whites. Ellen White used to be a Millerite that would predict the end of the world, but the end of the world never came. So a lot of the Millerites kind of left. And this Ellen White, she used to have these visions and she, they, her and her husband, they're like leaders of this church, but they were very influential on John's family, the Kellogg family. And so he did get to spend a lot of time with them. They were very impressed with him and they spent a lot of money grooming him to be a leader of the church. When he was 16, he was helping the church with their monthly publication called The Health Reformer, and he started writing editorials for the church publication as well. There's a lot of influences on, on John, but I'm not going into them because there's so many. He had his hand in so many different things that I'm not going to go there. But just know he was reading all these things and then spewing it back out into these articles and whatnot. And he, he did for his whole life. He did have access to the White's library. And like I said, he tried to get, he tried to read everything that was going on. Now he didn't want to be a doctor. He had seen a surgery happen on a kitchen table through a window of a friend's house. I think it was a friend's house. And he was like, not into that blood thing. And he was like, I want to do anything but be a doctor. So that's interesting to note. Because a lot of the church is health. And so he was into that, but he didn't want to be a doctor or a surgeon. And he ended up doing both. But anyway, so <laughs> he uh, was he was very involved with the church's beliefs. They 
believed in clean living, no toxic drugs, the quackery kind, no bloodletting, no cupping. They were into personal hygiene and sexual cleanliness. At 16, um, John was already, he loved teaching. He was already starting to teach others. He had been teaching 40 students and he took it very seriously. He stayed up late grading papers, writing lessons plans. He, like I said, he was doing a lot of things. He was reading a lot. He was involved with the church. He was working with the brooms. He was, I mean, he, this guy, even when he lay in later life, I don't think this guy ever slept. He was always so busy. And like when I say the Kellogg work ethic was strong, I am not kidding. That entire family was working night and day. Hmm. At uh, let's see, the, he got another bout of TB, uh, which delayed him from going to college. But in 1872, he eventually made it to Michigan State, where he got a teaching degree. But that same year, the Whites talked him into going out to this college to get more educated on hydrotherapy. It was it was kind of a hydro. I'll talk about it in a second his education, but it was a where he learned more about the hydrotherapy because, like I said, they were very into all these natural things. His brother was chaperone, and then he went with the Whites' two sons and some girl that was in the church as well. The Seventh Day. Adventists. They came out during, like I said, when the second great awakening came about, that's where those preachers would travel around the country and talk about the end of the world and that kind of thing. But Ellen had these visions and she was, a lot of her visions were health reform. And so a lot of it was based on, on these things. And they ended up opening up a institute it's kind of like boarding house type of thing. And they preached to abstain from meat, tobacco, coffee, tea, and alcohol. Avoid gre- greasy foods, spicy, and pickled, food, pickled foods. And to abstain from masturbation and excessive sex. So, I mean, it's not like the worst thing, but also there was a lot of sexual transmitted diseases at the time. And so, I mean, it was mostly his health. It was, I mean, they're not preaching bad things. <laughs> but um, so the institute was called the Western Health Reform Institute. They started out really small. Uh, they, I think, saw like 16 patients a month at first. Uh, the Whites sent John and those others to the Russell Trolls Hydrotherapeutic College in New Jersey. And John, John went and he did he read everything. He was an excellent student. He did all that was asked of him. He took it all in, but he felt like it was lacking. And he didn't agree with Troll a um, bit. So he, when he left, he was intrigued and he, he wanted to do more as far as the medical field. But he never put it on his resume that he went to the school. He, that's how little this, this place meant to him. <laughs> And I think with the disagreements that he had with Troll, who was involved with the church, like he would write papers and whatnot, he started, when he went back to the paper, the publications for the church, he started to discount some of the things that he was teaching. So got his revenge on all that. But anyway, so once he was finished, he told the Whites he wasn't ready to 
I mean, he, he felt like he needed more education because they really wanted him to to do more in the Institute. But he decided to go to the University of Michigan for some more medical education. But because he enrolled late, it was a huge class and they made him sit way, way up in the auditorium and his education, again, was kind of lacking and he felt like he wasn't able to get as much as he could from there. So he left after a little while and talked the whites into letting him go to Bellevue. Now the whites were loaning him money. That's why he had to talk them into it. They were loaning him money as an investment because they felt like he was going to be helping to take things over when he was educated. So he went to Bellevue hospital in New York city, which I know you've heard of Bellevue. It has quite the reputation for mental health, which I'm going to do a podcast on um, fairly soon. I've been reading and researching it, but, but for now we'll just talk about his education. <laughs> um, there was a lot of words uh, at Bellevue with the urban poor immigrants, lunatics, the critically and acute ill, the mentally and physically ill. And that's, pretty much helped him. He was very charitable. It helped him realize the needs of the poor and the immigrants. And so that had a lot of influence on him later with missions. Uh, let's see. So also, um, he also took advantage of the doctors at this place as far as following for those diseases that he felt were important. Like I told you he was into digestion. So he really, you had to pay extra if you wanted to follow or get in with other doctors, which I think is, I know. It's cool. cool. Yeah. yeah you cool. had to pay extra yeah. to, to round with them. I feel like <laughs> it's like in nursing school. That should be part of the education right, already. <laughs> right. But maybe it was extra. Maybe because he did take a lot of advantage of, as, as many opportunities as he, as he could. And he lived very poorly and he was very proud of the fact that he was living off like an apple or whatever and nuts. So he, he had to get more money of course, but like in our, in nursing school, you know, we did the, I always like we get to pay to work and we had clinicals and we had, you know, our last year we had to do stuff where we were actually working as nurses, like student nurses. Right. And yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's like that, except you're paying to do more of it. Like, let's say our my last semester, I was in a ICU, or no, I was in the ER. And what if I wanted to also do ICU? I would pay extra to have extra clinical. So it's kind of like that, mm -hmm. where I'm, where I'm okay. having more experience. So he followed along um, with GI, and he also was studying under a gynecologist uh, surgeon. So the, the guy knows the guy, necologist surgeons worked with sexually transmitted diseases. And I think this is where he really took his beliefs. Cause before I told you the church was like not wanting for excess of sex. Well, he abstained from sex. I think the mm. things that he saw, like the cures that they were doing on syphilis and whatnot, were so extreme that it really did leave a lasting impression on him. Uh, so from that, um, he also learned about the 
cleanliness, how to be, you know, that the importance of cleanliness, which I found interesting because at the time I did an episode about um, Ignis uh, Selma Weiss. Selma Weiss. Um, he was the almost famous hand washer episode where it dealt with childbed fever. Now, John was learning about childbed fever, but they studied his research on cleanliness of, of the hands. He did a report that said doctors that were going from the morgue to delivering babies found high mortality rates in the women who delivered. And so he learned from that, which I found very interesting because at the time people weren't listening to some of ice and his research and they thought he was crazy. And he, he ended up going crazy. Like it's, it's really interesting that John was taking that and realizing there was something to it where as a lot of his colleagues were thinking that it was bollocks. So that was very interesting. There was also another guy in the States that was also practicing cleanliness, hand washing that I don't remember, but I <laughs> remember some of us because I did that podcast on him. Mm -hmm. So after graduating, he took a course on an electric therapeutic class. John used that later in his practices for, for hysteria and depression and psychogenic. So it's pretty much electrotherapy to a mild degree, not quite what they were doing at the time at like Bellevue and whatnot, like a lower degree. Yeah. Um, but he never stopped educating himself. He was constantly learning from other doctors and the new, like I said, the new research and he would go visit other hospitals like all around the world. So he was very into learning to, to continuing his education which I also think is very, all right. So in 1875, he returned to Battle Creek and they wanted to put him at the head of the Institute, but he, he and the other physicians were like, no, no, not ready. Um, he even went, he was like, no, I need some, I need a sabbatical. <laughs> he did all this schooling. He was like, I need a break. Um, but he did go, he went to the world's fair where he went he went to see all the latest things in the medical tent, the medical area, the medical buildings. I don't know how it what the world's fair looked like, but he went to do that. He found a company named Xander that sold all kinds of exercise equipment that did passive workouts for people that were invalids that were doing all kinds of latest, the latest and greatest, like it was like the Pelotons of, of, of the 1870s. Um, let's see. He also, uh, he ended up purchasing a lot later for his, inst his institute. Um, then he came back to Battle Creek and he, he ended up being the secretary of the board, but he, he did start putting um, his vision to play, to, to work. He uh, then got married to Ella Eaton. Um, she was very much a part of the, of the, like he was a, she was a partner with him. Um, they ended up, <laughs> they were married for like 41 years, 41 years. And the book said they never consummated their marriage. 
because he abstained from sex. Really? Yeah. Uh, they did adopt a lot of children. They adopted seven children. They were all different races, uh, Mexican and African-American. And I think there was a Puerto Rican. They uh, also fostered. So there, at some point there was like 42 children that were running out of that home. The Ella would, oh. yeah, it was a lot. Ella would help with the homeschooling along with an assistant she also helped other families with a, with fostering. She organized nearby orphanages. She was part of the temperance union and the suffrage movement. She was very involved with the Institute and helping with dietary. She was actually, she came with her sister at one point, her sister got sick and she helped nurse her and Dr. Kellogg was so impressed with her, asked her to stay in Battle Creek. She ended up going to the nursing school that was developed. He developed um, at the at the sanitarium, which I'll talk about later. But he, she, she became a nurse. It was helping with with that. She's just very, very involved with with all of that. Going into Will's childhood. Will was eight years younger than John. He was the baby of the family, the baby boy of the family, not the youngest. The family, though, did not think he was quite bright or very sociable. Uh, he never got a lot of love. He, he kind of really needed that, I think, but he didn't get it. He, the family is very, like I said, they weren't very openly lovable. Um, they felt he wasn't very smart. Uh, and then he always said he never learned to play. Uh, John made his life hell. He would tattle on him over everything. He was verbally and physically abusive to him. He would humiliate him in front of other people. He would punch him. I don't think Will really ever got over that because later on it kind of continued. Like I said, the discord between them lasted for their life. Uh, Will did survive malaria as a kid. He was also nearsighted and lost most of his teeth before he was 20. The family didn't think it was worth it to educate him, but his mother did homeschool him till he was 13. He was a very avid reader and he loved numbers. He, in his own way, was very smart, but he's very smart with number. I mean, the guy wasn't, he was bright. He was very bright. But they just didn't find his niche, I guess. You know, it was a little different than John. One of the things that Will really loved was this horse that the family had called Old Spot. And he swore, <laughs> he swore that someday he was going to own some Arabians after he came home and his dad had sold the, the horse to, to a farmer. He was so, and he did. He ended up buy, buying a house later in life in Pomona, California, which actually is near where I grew up, grew up and he had some of the best Arabian horses in the country and he would have shows every oh. weekend. People would come and watch these little rodeos and they had like this chariot race thing that was like the Ben-Hur movie. Oh. And it was kind of weird because he would sit in his car and watch people come and enjoy it, but he didn't actually go and participate. And yeah, and at the end of his life, when he was not able to see, he became blind when he was old, 
he would go and sit in the parking lot of the factory, the Kellogg factory. He didn't run it anymore just to listen to the machines and feel the vibration like in his car, in his wheelchair. He's, he was huh. an odd one, <laughs> but anyway, so maybe he just loved it so much. I mean, that it. was his life. The, the cereal company ended up being his life. But anyway, so he mm -hmm. ended up going to work at the broom factory as well at six and he was really good at it, but not just the production side, but the management side. By 12, he was supervising six to eight other people at 12. And then at 14, he became a salesperson. I don't think he liked the salesperson as much, but he did like the management of all of it. And he, again, developed this strong work ethic. He even had some plots of land that his father had that he turned into vegetable gardens and he would tend those as well. Like I said, when Dr. Kellogg came back from educate from his, all of his education, he did end up taking over the Institute that the whites had. At first it was a 16th a month uh, patient. Like they had it at this boarding house. They had some doctors. The whites didn't like, the doctors, the patients didn't really like the doctors. They did do a lot of water treatments. I mean, like I said, that was a big thing. People were given baths three times a day. There was water sprays. Water sprays are like, they get them pretty much naked and like hose them down. Um, the wet, wet pack treatment, I'm not sure what that's about, but I'm assuming it's packs of water. <laughs> <laughs> like towels wrapped around or something. I don't know. The hydration from the outside in. Yeah. I know. I was going to look it up, but then I was like, there, seriously, there was like over hundreds of different types of water treatments. And I didn't want to go down that rabbit hole because it, there's no, that they did at the, at the facility or at the time they were, because I was like, water treatments. Oh, okay. okay. There's a magazine for water cures. How much could you really talk about water cures? Right? I mean, to have a magazine about it. Mm -hmm. Like this, and today, in this episode, we're going to talk all about spraying you down with a hose and all of its benefits. <laughs> and then next month, water. Right, so then next month, what are you going to talk about? So there had to be a lot of different types of treatment. I mean, you're not going to have one episode saying, it's important to drink water. Make sure you drink eight glasses a day. You know what I mean? Like there had to be more to it. And there is, there's, there's right. hundreds of different types of water treatment. Most of which they did at the new Institute that Dr. Kellogg is going to build. Was that kind of like those water treatments in the movie? Yes. Like those, I don't know, like sit with their feet in the, in the. That electric water. Yeah, that electric yes, water one. That's and... part of the electrotherapy that he learned. But yes. Okay. So that, that sort that's of water, water treatment. Weird. Yeah. So yes, there was there was a lot. There's and then well, I'll talk about like a day in the life at this new sanitarium. But it involved a lot of water. <laughs> I mean, even mm -hmm. even later, even later in life even later in the sanitarium's life, there was a lot of, and water is beneficial. It is hydrating. It's good for you, but they had some crazy things. Uh, 
Oh, this yeah. institute, it wasn't very profitable. The food was bland. The doctors weren't good. And so there was very little customer return. So there wasn't a lot of profit. But John took over. Mm-hmm. And at first he had 20 patients. He changed the name from to the sanitarium from the Western Reform Institute. He said that people didn't want to be reformed. They wanted to be informed. But he also established... Uh, this theory that he wanted to establish the temple of health and well-being. This meant that this place had to be attractive, modern, and luxurious, which of course meant talking the whites into more money. (laughs) These poor whites. I, he, I didn't talk about, like I have all these notes, but I didn't talk about it. I'm just going to mention it right now. They ended up falling out. Because Dr. Kellogg had visions and these visions never stopped. Like they weren't visions like Ellen White, where she was like, God was telling her he had these ideas of what he wanted health to be. He wanted to teach everybody. He wanted, he wanted everybody to be healthy. And so that costs money to do his visions. And it never stopped. Even until he was in his nineties, he, it never stopped. But the way he was going about it, the church wasn't happy with it. So they did end up splitting. They kind of kicked him out. They kicked him out of the church. They didn't kind of did. They did. They, they <laughs> kind of finally did. They, they just had, even though the sanitarium was still a part of the church and they still were like on the board, they, they kicked him out, <laughs> but he was still director. So he, he was constantly, I mean, at first, like I said, they, they helped form him. They helped raise him. They helped give him his education. But like I said, later on, there was a lot of discord between him and the whites as well. But mm-hmm. so he, he, <laughs> he started this five story building with an open veranda and, uh, and wings were constantly being added. He opened a nursing school. There was a cooking school. He replaced all the gas with electricity, which, of course, is important for electrotherapy. Uh, there was a nursery and a kindergarten for the patient's children's children. The kids did not have to follow the same regimen as their parents. They didn't have to go through the crazy, the crazy regimen. But it was nice to have the kids there so the parents could come in and participate. He did... He had yeah. operating rooms, which were very clean, white tiled. There's a place at the top for the medical and nursing students to watch from above. He had a thousand seat auditorium done with a plenty of room for lectures, entertainment, concerts. They would have dances. There was an enema room and a sunlight room. And that was like before seasonal affective disorder was recognized. And he was, like I said, he was up on all of these things before. Like, he didn't know why. I mean, maybe he didn't have the full rationale. But he knew there was something to it. There's a lot of things that he did. They knew something there was to it. Like, the enema room, they had, they did yogurt enemas. And that's in the movie where, oh, shoot. What's that actor's name? I forgot his name. Broadwick. Matthew Broadwick. Yeah, oh, the husband. Yeah. So he was told, take him to the enema room and give him 
oh, they were going to give him 15 quarts or they give him like all of this yogurt. And he's like, I can't eat that much yogurt. He's like, oh, you're not going to be eating it. And they really <laughs> did that because mm. he found the probiotics were important to the digestive system. That's something else that he had learned at some point. And so that became a part of the regimen. Eating it directly. Just right up the rectum. Yeah. <laughs> that was before lactobacillus pills that <laughs> you can get <laughs> at the local apothecary. Anyway. Yeah. So they that was a real thing. And the and the enema room could do 15 quarts of water in a minute. Now what? Yeah. I don't know if you've ever had an enema. I've only had one in my life. <laughs> And just that little bottle was uncomfortable. 15, say, I couldn't imagine 15 that much. quarts in a minute. Dr. Kellogg was very... Like you more oh, than- he was very, very, very adamant that people had many bowel movements a day. He felt that was very important mm. to keep things clean. And he felt like they needed to not smell. There was times when, especially when he got older, he have a bowel movement and come out and say, see, it doesn't smell. <laughs> He'd bring out his bowel. Yes. I'm not kidding. No, yeah, he way. became a little, uh, a little eccentric place had over a thousand employees. They weren't very well paid, but Dr. Kellogg felt like they were being compensated with room and board and experience. A lot of them were some of the nursing students and that were working there. Um, they cared for seven to 10,000 patients a year. Now I'm, I'm not talking about the very, very first expansion. I'm talking about these are expansions that he's done over the years. I'm just condensing them all together mm-hmm. because he was constantly exp- ex- extending it. And if I went through each year of whatever he did, we would be here for a month. But that was one of the, the things that he expanded on. There was, uh, I talked about the enema room. There was also 400 acres that provided farm for the meals they served. They, they harvest their own fruits and vegetables. They also canned and they Mm -hmm. had a manufacturing area. They didn't just do cereal and the cereal comes later, but they also were selling nuts and they just all kinds of things that people could buy and take with them home. Um, There was a charity hospital laundry area. There was also 20 cottages for the wealthy families. Uh, and then in, there was, of course, this huge dining room. And until 1900, they served meat and they called it the liberal table. And they they also would serve coffee and tea. The conservative table would, would do some meat, but no coffee or tea. And then there was the radical table that had no flesh foods, he called them, and or tea or coffee and any of that. And that was the most popular area. And that's where Dr. Kellogg would sit. But then in 1900, the whites gave them permission to stop serving meat altogether. There was also some gyms. There ended up being three gyms. They had electrical equipment, exercise equipment. There was machines that would beat and slap a patient. Um, it would flog them because it felt like Oh, yeah, I saw that in the movie where they stood there yeah. and like, <laughs> rotated. I forgot um, about that. It reminded me of like a car wash yes. when the thing Well, that was supposed to help with circulation. That reminds me of like the <laughs> Kung Fu Panda, except it wasn't, it didn't seem like, I mean, 
it didn't seem like it was comfortable, but where it just spins around and it's like torture. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, there are a lot of the, and that's again, Matthew Broderick's is like, you know, kind of like protecting himself with his hands up. Like he's being, you know, tortured. I feel like he was all of us today in that movie. <laughs> what, like, yeah. What, what is like a completely, for him, it was a completely, what, like, makes yeah, no sense. for him, it was a completely <laughs> foreign experience. His wife had gone many mm-hmm. times, right? She was all into it and all that. But for him, it was like a whole new world. And his, ex- now, how long did the average patient stay there? Weeks. Like, I, that's what I forgot. Weeks, yeah. Weeks, Weeks or a, a month or so, yeah. Now they may not have with children, but it wasn't like a couple days stay. It wasn't like a you go to a spa retreat for a couple days, like you and I would do. It was weeks mm-hmm. of of it. How much were they charge? How much did they charge? It actually wasn't that was expensive. It? There, uh, let me see. I have it down because I was thinking, man, I would do it. They okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I. You want the you want right. the flogger one, right? <laughs> well, okay. I mean, like I said, I'll go into the into the day in the life of a patient, but not everybody was prescribed that. So mm-hmm. when they they had subscriptions to certain machines and certain things that they were supposed to go through, so it's not like you go to a gym and go, okay, today I'm going to work on legs. Tomorrow I'm going to work on you know, upper body, whatever, they were prescribed those machines by the doctors. Mm-hmm. So a room would cost 10 to $16 a week. In as of four years ago, this is, this was in that book. It, that mm-hmm. translated to $278 to $444 a week. Now you okay. could get a nice hotel in Vegas for 200 bucks a night. A night. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, that's a pretty good deal. And that included all those mm-hmm. machines and everything. Like that included, you had to pay extra for a personal nurse or any surgeries or labs. But pretty mm-hmm. much that included food and everything. Like that included the food. Okay. Right? Wow. I mean, that included the rental for the bicycle for the <laughs> for the outside. That's it's pretty. I don't know. I thought it was a good deal, and they were still very profitable. Mm-hmm. But they also sold food, and they sold you know the additional. Corn yeah, flakes. well, they did <laughs> sell cornflakes later. Well, like I said, we'll talk about that. But yeah, so they did make some money. Now, Doctor Kellogg wasn't in it for money. He, like I said, wanted to get people healthy. So that's what mm-hmm. he did. Um. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. So the, oh, there was also a publishing house um, for magazines and books. And mm-hmm. okay. So he never stopped talking like in the movie. He was always preaching, right? He was always talking. Yeah. Well, he would have rotating 24 hour day secretaries that were writing everything he said down. Even if he was on a train, he would have stenographers there. Because he would turn all of these thoughts in his head into books and articles. So they would, when they were done, they would send it off to the publishing house and they would edit and fix it. And they would turn them into pamphlets, books, articles. 
And he made money off the books too. He wrote a lot of books. He had a lot of ideas and he was just spewing them out. Yeah, they're constantly writing everything down. Yeah, so he was like two, 200 uh, words a minute. He was spewing out. And he would go on for four or five hours a day. And mm-hmm. I think there was one point he tw- was 20 hours in a day. The church wasn't happy about all the money he was spending, but he kept he kept going. And then he ended up reconfigure things. He turned it into a nonprofit uh, so he could keep costs down. So he didn't have to pay the employees as much and all that. But it also made him the main director, main decision maker. So he didn't have to go to the whites anymore. Uh, let's see. In 1880, he hired Will to come and help manage. So... For Will, really quickly, he, like I said, was being recognized as being this broom management whiz kid. He helped his brother's factory, even though his brother was kind of a jerk, didn't really get involved, didn't even help him help him. He went to Dallas to help out another factory. He wasn't, I guess he didn't get along very well with other people, but he was trying, like he was good at his job. He was very good at it. Just wasn't like his brother wouldn't even let him stay at the house at his own house at the house in 1880, he negotiated with his school to do a, I guess it was a two year program. He did it in 90 days to save money because otherwise he'd be, it was a long distance thing. He'd have to be commuting. He'd have to be paying room and board and all that stuff. But he stayed for 90 days. He did it all. And he ended up having a bookkeeping and um, accounting certificate. He ended up, Mm. that same year he graduated, he married Ella Puss. Her name, he nicknamed her Puss. Um, They had, I know, (laughs) now it seems kind of weird, but that's what he called her. Um, He had two boys and a girl. And also that's the same year that Will hired him to come and manage the publishing and food business and the exercise equipment. So not only were they using the exercise equipment, they were selling it as well. They every opportunity to make money, like even the furniture that they were selling, the they had chairs that were good for posture, they were selling at at the sanitarium. But Will came and did all that and Will went above and beyond. Like he went above and beyond. He was Will's he was John's valet, shining shoes, trimmed his beard. He took di- dictation as well. Even in the bathroom when he was having one of his many bowel movements, he was, um, but John was not appreciative. He, he was verbally abusive to Will, even as adults. He was doing that in front of other people as well. Like he would ride his bicycle from one building to another and he made Will run beside him. He, there was a guy in the movie, the one that had died that brought the stake. He was running in with a stake and, and then he ended up dying. Remember? Yes. Kind of, that's how he kind of treated his brother kind of just berating him and okay. verbally abusing him. He even kicked him when he was dead. So, I mean, yeah. Like, I, <laughs> make him feel bad for dying right there on the property. Right. And people are watching right everybody. <laughs> no, he didn't die, but he did treat him pretty crappy. So, John was a little bit of narcissist, narcissistic, so I don't think he saw it that way. He didn't see that his actions were detrimental. But John took it, I mean, Will took it for 25 years. He was there for a long time. He was very poorly paid. 
but he ran that place. He had his fingers in every single department. He ran payroll. He ran the vendors. He ran the employees. He made sure things ran efficiently. If things weren't working right, he fixed it. He listened to the employees. They liked him a lot because they did listen to him and he fixed problems. He was customer service before customer service was a thing. If people didn't get their books, because they did the mail order thing as well. And they did it, they did end up doing mail order food. But he he was like, if there was a problem, he took care of it. Like he seriously worked night and day. Which is probably why he didn't have a very good relationship with his family. John, on the other hand, he was good with his children. He would roughhouse with them and whatnot. So he he did have a much better relationship, which is funny because he didn't have sex with his wife. <laughs> like you would think it'd be more intimate if he was better with his family. But anyway, back to Will. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he, yeah. So he stayed there a really long time and then he had had it. He, he finally had had it and left and was trying to start things on his own. And that was after the, they, he tried, he got the recipe from, John and he did have a percentage they gave him he gave him like 25% of the business of the food business in the beginning and so he did have that but John just wasn't I don't think John realized how important Will was until he was gone because after Will left things weren't run so well they weren't uh, people would leave and not even pay their bill <laughs> and there was yeah. more problems. Things were falling apart. And when Will left, there was, there ended up being a fire, which burnt everything down. And there was a fire in the movie as well. And nobody, mm-hmm. I believe nobody died. I think there was two injuries, but nobody had, had died, which is amazing. There's 300 people. And, Will ended up coming back because he had such a loyalty to the sanitarium, not so much John, but to the sanitarium that he did come back and help rebuild. And he stayed for another two years. So after the, after the fire, it was 1907. They constructed a new building that had as little of wood as possible. It, they did have wood trim, but they, it was mostly made of things that wouldn't burn so easily. There was uh, steam powered elevators. There was 400 bedrooms and suites. Half of them had their own bathroom, but because of all the enemas, they had to make sure the toilets and showers and bathtubs were nearby. Um, there was a grand lobby that was air circulating throughout the, that had air circulating throughout the, the building or well, they said there was good air circulation throughout the whole building. Uh, the furniture again, again was mm-hmm. for sale. There was a concierge, lots of plants, plants, flowers, palm trees that were exotic. There's a main parlor. That's where a lot of the entertainment happened with orchestras, lectures, movies. There was 20-something physicians. They also employed female doctors, which I thought was very progressive as well. I thought that just showed to his uh, suffrage um yeah. His beliefs. Um, there was 300 nurses and bath attendants. There was 100 masseuses, bakers, waiters, cooks, attendants, bellhops, orderlies, and security guards. The dining room was on the 
fifth and sixth floor because Will felt that that way the food smell wouldn't float up to patient rooms and treatment rooms and stuff. So they put it on the sixth and fifth floor. There was the dining room was very elegant. Okay. There was a big old sign that said Fletcherize. Now Horace Fletcher was a person who felt that chewing to help with pre-digestion was very important. There was like a certain number of chews you were supposed to do. And they really did sing that song that they sung in the movie. Choo, choo, choo. That is a thing to do. Blah, blah. I don't know those words. But they really did sing that in breakfast. Now, in the movie, it made it seem like people were coming in and out, whatever, like a hotel. But they did have certain times mm-hmm. for breakfast. And so, yeah, they sang the song. And the song probably took longer than it took to chew. But, yeah, that was a thing. They had uh, treatment rooms that were also on the fifth and sixth floor. Treatment rooms meaning like post-operative rooms and or rooms like a hospital room. Okay, yeah. Um, there were post-operative rooms. The surgery was done there. And one of the things that I thought was so amazing with the surgeries is not that they were huge surgeries. He, he just did a few things, but he would have people doing same day or next day exercising in the bed and breathing exercises like we do now where we have them use the incentive spirometer to help open up the lungs and prevent pneumonia. They were doing that then. Yeah. But I don't, they didn't realize they were doing it for those, like they didn't know the rationale. They didn't know they were, they just, he just knew it was healthy and a thing to do, but it had better outcomes, positive outcomes. He had a lot better outcomes than the doctors that he took over. There was uh, three gyms. They offered weight training, volleyball, badminton, calisthenics, marching drills, and a lot of equipment. The, they had some bathhouses, pools that were fashioned after Turkish and Russian baths. There was one building for men and one for women. And then the laboratories were in the basement. That's where they analyzed labs and the bowel movements. So a day in a life, kind of a patient would come to the facility. I told you about the pricing. A patient would come and check in and the bell the bellhop would show them to their room, have them unpack and relax. They would go to dinner for their first meal, and then they would take them to bed by 9 p.m. Patients were woken up at 6 a.m. and escorted to the bath department where there was hundreds of types of water treatments. (laughs) There was swimming and the water sprays. There was a surf bath. I have no idea what a surf bath is either. They (laughs) They were rubbed down for a short period of time, and then they were left to dry. Uh, Then there was this prayer service offered if they wanted to. Uh, Then the breakfast, choo, 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 that is a thing to do. And then they would go from there to the medical examiner where they got a physical inventory. And the doctor would not only go through the weaknesses, the problems the patient was having, but the strengths. And I think they did that because they were trying to make a positive thing. Well, okay, but look at you've got some muscle on your upper arms or something like they would they would go through the positive as well i i think that was a mental thing <clears throat> just to yeah not they didn't want the patient to just focus on the negative now the rich and the famous were personally seen by dr kellogg 
the women who came in with female complaints got a pelvic exam and they had a photography department as well. So if they saw something abnormal, they would take pictures. They had uh, tested every patient for STDs and they did chest x-rays on all patients. Saturdays were observed for Sabbath. So most of the things were closed. Most of the staff were part of the church. So that's kind of one of the reasons why it was closed. And then Sunday they would have services for other Christian denominations. Then at noon they would go to lunch and then the afternoons was outdoor activity. So they would play tennis. There was horseback riding, swimming, badminton. See, like this is a great deal. I would pay $400 a week for this, right? Kind of like on Spray a resort. Spray me with water. If you're not getting the right. medical treatment. <laughs> right. I mean, that's okay. That's like having a checkup. I don't know how often they saw the doctor. <laughs> But, like, if the doctor is going to prescribe, he's like, okay, well, I think you should do some horseback riding today. That's your prescription. I'm like, all right, I can do that. Right. I would just opt out of the uh, yogurt. Yeah, animals. that was, <laughs> yeah, that was probably a problem. Like, I don't, no, I wouldn't. I mean, no. <laughs> <laughs> I need to think I'm about like, that. Much, <laughs> I mean, all, honestly, if you're doing enemas, now in the movie, I think it was like, well, they were doing them often in the day, right? But if you were already having mm -hmm. enemas, I mean, bowel movements often in the day, then you don't have to do any more. Like if, you're, if your bacteria was working properly the way Dr. Kellogg wanted it to and you're having bowel movements like three times a day, you only have to do one enema a day. Get it over with in the morning. Be all right. But anyway, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I mean, it's a small price to pay to do all this fun stuff. <laughs> uh let's see they had like they you could get bicycles and there was huge huge paths and stuff to to wander around so let's see and then they would have another treatment um whatever was prescribed at 4 p.m and then dinner was at six after dinner there was a lot of entertainment there was plays they would have movies musicals there was a ballroom for dances and then they would sometimes have lectures by the doctors and of course the most popular ones were by dr kellogg he they really loved doing that he also would go to the roof and do marches with music and that's where they did aerobics and calisthenics and they marched in certain patterns and he would yell out what to do and they ended up doing a record. So there was a record company that wanted to record all of that. So they did. They made a record that people could take home and do aerobics before Jane Fonda was ever born in their home, mm -hmm. which I thought was really cool. Like he seriously was like, like at the forefront of all this stuff that's like people would think that was invented later, right? Um, there was also a question box that guests could put their embarrassing questions in and that he would talk about on Monday nights. The guests would put things that they thought were embarrassing. However, they were they would put their own their own questions and stuff in it, him and the staff. So I'm not sure how many questions were really being answered by the patients. But so yeah, yeah so <laughs> in like in the movie he would have, you know, he was talking about meat. Like he put that meat under the microscope. He really did that in real life to show all the bacteria. Oh, yeah. 
comparing it to like yes poop. <laughs> and the and the wolf he really did that he he said that yeah. he tamed the wolf like it was tame it was playing around with his kids because he gave them non-fleshy food and then once he started introducing meat back into the diet the wolf became wild again like automatically right so he liked visuals which are very effective visuals are very effective yeah so he was he was very smart in teaching like this guy was a very good teacher little out there sometimes but he was very good at teaching um he would lecture on his biological living biological living was his firm foundation of how people should live he wanted to preserve restore and regain healthy bodies and minds he was very into non-meat diets he felt it was the cause of many chronic diseases like chronic constipation gallstones obesity arthritis hypertension cancer liver and kidney failures among many many other things it was like the root of all evil he also hated oysters with a passion and that is in the movie a little bit in the train scene when the guy is eating oysters and Matthew Broderick's wife is like going on about how disgusting they are. Dr. Kellogg says they're like ocean bottom feeders or something. Like she's just like, she's preaching mm -hmm. what she learned from Dr. Kellogg. Cause he really, it went to the point where it hurt the oyster industry is how bad his lecturing became. Yeah. Really? Because people Thanks. were, okay, I, there's a lot of people that came to the sanitarium. But again, he was writing books. He was in magazines. He had pamphlets. So his preaching was going all over the country. So it wasn't just yeah. his, his words were going everywhere. Just like Will's cereal was being put in every home. Dr. Kellogg's philosophies were pretty much going into every home. So anyway, back to his lectures. Um, he he lectured on the meat and the oysters. Um, he also lectured about having to have several bowel movements a day. He lectured on the importance of the body not staying in one place too long. It needed exercise. Don't sit very long. He he believed in non-conforming clothing that women should we wearing loose fitting and comfortable clothes that allowed the female form to develop as God intended. And that was a thing that was going on at the time too, was dress reform. And again, I think that was an episode I did with Dr. Watt, um, Mary Walker. You, I know you listened to it cause I made you listen mm -hmm. to it, but the, she, yeah, she rather yes, preferred to wear the, the men's, men's mm -hmm. clothing. So she, and was huge into dress reform. I feel like for me, that was, she had this uphill fight. She was a woman doctor that couldn't get a job as a doctor. She was into reform and suffrage. And here he is, he's got this sanitarium with women working there and he's preaching dress reform. Like she would have fit in. <laughs> she, he also lectured on that, avoiding earrings because it would droop the earlobes. Um, he also believed that women were just as equal as men. They weren't the weaker sex. Um, he gave advice to the audience about things like bedwetting, like just 
you have to have faith, like it'll go away kind of thing. He also advised parents not to change their left-handed children to right-handed children. He said that life's too not long enough for all that training. Um, he against he advised against fretting. That wasn't good for the body, which stress is not good for the body, right? One of his biggest lectures was on masturbating. He advised parents to watch the activities of their cheerful, pleasant children to make sure they weren't becoming recluse or grumpy. He said to check their clothing for <laughs> semen or vaginal discharge on their bed clothing. Okay, so he would help them with the hit their children or husbands or wives or whatever. First line of cure was diet. Take away all the foods that could excite like sugar and candy and all that, you know, caffeine, caffeinated or alcohol. If that wasn't working, he would bandage the hands of the boys or the men at night. If that didn't work, he would circumcise without anesthesia because yeah, because he wanted oh. he wanted the pain to be a reminder not to be touched and to be associated and to associate pain with the penis. For girls who were orgasming several times a day, he would cause blisters around their clitoris with the substance that they ended up using for um for not anesthetic and I guess anesthetic for for keeping clean it was a spray that they would use to sanitize but it would cause blistering on the clitoris yeah it's so interesting how some of his ideas like with women you know like being having being able to put in their ideas you know he had some good ideas and then some of his other ideas are just insane it gets it gets worse but we'll talk about it later. Um, he, okay. So then, okay, this, this does gets worse. If that doesn't work, they remove the clitoris altogether. Yep. 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 Um, surprisingly, these lectures did not shock the audience. But this was a time when sex was thought of as dirty and just not appropriate. There's a lot of church going people that were thinking that church was for procreating and not, it was a dirty thing. Mm -hmm. Dirty, dirty. Uh, Dr. Kellogg was also doing surgeries. He, he didn't start out doing surgeries, but he found that the doctors that were working there, they were mostly moonlighting doctors, surgeons that would come in, they would do the surgeries and then they were gone. They would leave and so if there was a problem, an infection, something went terribly wrong, he'd have to call these doctors back. And I guess he felt like if you, you know, you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. So he taught himself surgery. He went to Europe all over with the best surgeons and he learned how to do surgeries that, that he needed to do in the sanitarium. And he practiced as well. Like he'd be on a train and he would practice and he would, and he, he would become nervous he didn't want to do surgeries. Like I said before, I don't think he liked the blood, (laughs) but he did. And he became very good at it. And he had very good success rate. He would have a prayer before each surgery. He kept patients warm with sandbags around them. And and he invented a warm operating table. 
don't know if he invented it, but he used a warm op- operating table. He performed about 25 surgeries a day, two, two to three times a week. And they were like different surgeries, like hemorrhoid removal, ovary removal, gallbladders, appendixes, um, things like that. A lot of GI stuff. Okay, he would charge the rich a lot of money. And then he wouldn't charge the poor. So he did a lot of charity work. He was like the Robin Hood of, of surgery. Um, he also did most of the gynecological work. He developed, he developed a womb massaging technique. That was a surgery, I guess, because you had to put your hands all up in there. And he would massage the uterus for like 20 minutes or so. And it would, the women would say they were worn out from it. They were exhausted and they'd have to rest. And they would do it a couple times a day. And I'm not sure if there was benefits to it or not. I don't know. But women kept coming back to the sands for, for more. So I don't, I don't know if that's how he got. I'm not saying he got his kicks that way. But mm-hmm. it does seem a little weird. Especially since he was yes, the one that wanted I to agree. do it. And not let anyone else do it. Mm-hmm. He, there was a lot of rich and famous that came. Like actors authors musicians like you name it people were coming and he made sure like they wouldn't be charged to be there but he made sure that it was advertised that they were there he didn't always follow the hippocratic oath he would tell people like but usually it was favorable like he would tell someone that he treated something but it was a good outcome it's kind of advertising right Mm -hmm. Um, he ended up becoming friends with Henry Ford and they did some pursuits like preventing tobacco use. Like Henry Ford would not let people smoke in his factory, but they, they did campaign for that as well. And they also were both into eugenics. There is a lot of famous people that were into eugenics. And I didn't realize to the extent until I started researching, reading about Dr. Kellogg, but Henry Ford was one of them. The Rockefellers. I mean, there was a lot of families that were influential that were into eugenics. So that's kind of more of the darker side of Dr. Kellogg. He was a supporter and a member of the eugenic movement. Um, eugenics is defined as breeding out the disease and disabilities and the so-called undesirable characteristics from the human population. Um, the movement started with a, a man named Sir Francis Galton, who was a naturalist. And he felt like the, his theories kind of addressed the social problems at the time, poverty, mass immigration, high infant mortality rate, massive population growth. And it was kind of a way to manage the social, socially undesirable. White people were being encouraged to reproduce while minorities and those with sicknesses both mental and physical were encouraged not to reproduce. It got to the point where there was sterilization laws that were put in place. And that's a whole other thing where people were being sterilized against their will. Or if you're in a mental hospital, you'd be sterilized without your permission. But um, I won't go into all that. He, I don't have evidence that he, he did that, but he did start a foundation that was the better betterment race betterment foundation um he like i said he wanted to fix people he wanted people to be healthier 
And I think with the eugenics, he felt like if you don't procreate, if you know you have an illness, then you shouldn't procreate, right? So that was where he stood on it. I don't know if he got as far as thinking people should be sterilized. Now, mm -hmm. it seems like he might have not been racist. I mean, he had African-American children, but he was racist. He did have racist ideas, and he also believed that marriages they shouldn't be mixed marriages um, and they should definitely not procreate. So he had a lot of, there should be mixed, shouldn't marriages, have or mixed shouldn't. marriages and they shouldn't procreate. Oh, yeah. So he, he ended up when he died, he left his money to this foundation and luckily there wasn't a lot of money and luckily they squandered the money. So there wasn't a lot of advancement. So eugenics kind of ended when the Nazis went crazy with it. So Hitler discovered these ideas. As a young kid, I always thought Hitler was the the one that thought of it. The one that he it was his ideas and he was pushing them. I had no idea that this was a movement that started way before Hitler came around. And as I become more involved with history and medical research and I'm learning all these things. It's so appalling and disgusting. And yeah. And mm -hmm. so I could go on and on, but we're going to now talk about cornflakes. <laughs> yeah. Cornflakes <laughs> are an idea that Dr. Kellogg had had when he was in college, not necessarily the cornflake, but he wanted something that was quick and easy. When he was going to school, you have to wait around for the porridge. You have to cook. Like, if you think about it, there's no breakfast that's just that easy. Unless you're having an apple for breakfast. There was no meal that could be prepared that was as quick as an easy, ready cereal type thing. And even though he didn't think of cereal at that moment, he felt like there should be some better way. And at some point, there was someone that came up with a porridge or a, or an oatmeal type thing where it was much, it was quicker, but it still was a long process. So he thought yeah. of that in, in college. There's no doubt that he had had <clears throat> that idea. However, the Kellogg brothers had very different versions of how the cornflake came about. Even, even Dr. Kellogg's wife, had a different version. They can't even agree where it was developed. They were doing experiments for years and they can't remember if it was in the sanitarium or Dr. Kellogg's house. The stories are all different. And Will says that he, it was him, um, but they were, they were doing this and it, it's a lot, it's a confusing process that I don't know how to explain, but because I, I'd have to see it and whatnot, but they were developing like this dough and they were trying to cook it and crunch it and come up with something. And at one point they did come up with something called granola. Granola wasn't new, but one of the patients had broken a tooth on some bread they were serving. And Dr. Kellogg's like, well, we can't have that. So he developed this granola and the granola was, because it was pre-cooked, he felt like that was a way to help the digestive system. He studied Pavlov's work, you know, Pavlov's, the uh, Pavlov's dogs, um, with the salivating 
and how important that is to break down food. And so he felt like if you're breaking down food before you even digest it, you're helping the digestive system. One with chewing and two with this partially cooked food. So they came up with this granola. I think it was Will that came up with the idea of putting milk in it. <laughs> but the that became a very popular item and they sold it in their sanitarium and even had mail order and everything because it, it ended up being very popular. The problem was one of the people that had already had granola, they named it the same thing. And so they were sued. They had to change the name, but they did continue to make it. The ideas for cereal. So they ended up finally coming up with this cornflake and it was a recipe that will like, will didn't change later when he started the company. Like I had to buy some cornflakes because I had been so long when I was doing this research, I was eating some cornflakes. Actually, <laughs> I didn't eat the cornflakes. I ate the sugar. What's it called? Frosted flakes. I because <laughs> I remember not liking cornflakes as much because I think when I was younger I'd put sugar on it which defeats the purpose of healthy. Uh, so I just bought Great. the frosted flakes. But frosted flakes and those other sugary ones didn't come until after Will died. He did not want to do that, mm -hmm. and and then that of course um, went into the problem with the obesity. But before that before the sugar and the yumminess he developed this recipe the problem is john was so talkative that he was sharing company secrets or you know not maybe the recipe but there was a guy named perky that had developed shredded wheats and shredded wheats was something that he invented because he had digestive problems and so John was really interested in this process. So he went to Colorado and talked to him and then they were sharing like ideas. He shared, Perky shared ideas of like the machinery and John shared cooking like process with him. And so Perky went on to make lots and lots of money and John went back and I didn't really help him much, but Will was upset because like he felt like people were taking advantage and there was a guy named Charles post. He had a lot of problems. He was poor too. Like he was down on his luck and he not poor, poor, but he did have some digestive issues as well. He ended up coming to the sands as a guest. They did what was called day guests, but they would stay other places. If you couldn't afford to stay there, there was boarding houses all over the place where you could stay and then come to the sands as a day patient. And that's what he did. Well, he ended up stealing the recipe for the cornflakes and he started the post cereal company. And so there was that. There was a lot of lawsuits for that as well, but it didn't really amount to much. And John was like, wasn't worth it. At least the cereal is getting out there. People are going to be healthier, blah, blah, blah. Will, on the other hand, was like, no, this was a lot of work. We worked really hard on that and people are taking advantage. We need to be in on this business. It was our recipe. And so he really was adamant about that. And John just kept saying no. So after 25 years of taking John's crap, Will finally left. And he ended up getting the recipe from John and some capital 
he had a friend that he had met while he was at the Sands that helped him with marketing, helped him with business strategy, even helped him with the name, the Kellogg's Toasted Cornflake Company. And really the business took off. He bought an old factory there in Battle Creek and he really, the business was really doing well. The problem was John didn't like that. Like he didn't like that his brother was having the success for some reason. And suddenly Dr. Kellogg wanted to get in on it. And he not only copied the box, it, I mean, it looked almost the same. He was advertising in the same places and it was confusing, but Will was very smart because he did a national campaign really quickly. And even though he didn't have the cereal yet, not enough to fill these orders. He had the demand waiting for it, which helped bring him some capital. So he'd put in magazines that, you know, we shouldn't be telling you this, but you know, we're, we're getting, we're getting the cereal as fast as we can. Please be patient. Here's a coupon for a free box later, all that stuff. And so people were suddenly like, Ooh, what is this? You know, like, and he even had a wink campaign where you go into the store and you wink at the grocer and they're supposed to ask what that was. And they gave you a free box of cornflakes. Yeah. They, okay. Yeah. So he, he created this demand and he even had this huge sign in times square that cost him so much money. I think a million or so in today's money. And, and it said, I want Kellogg's or whatever. I want cornflakes. So he created this demand and and he got children involved. So he put little like coloring books, and activity books. Well, he didn't put them in the cereal right away, but he did put a coupon in the box or on the box that they could mail to him and they would mail off, mail the kid the activity book. Later, they figured out, well, they could put that in the box and not only could they put it in the box? It took room to put prizes in the box, which meant less cereal, which I mean, doesn't seem like, mm-hmm. I don't know if you were a kid and you had like, you were digging for the toy and stuff, but when you dig for the toy, it didn't seem like it took that much room, but he's like, well, saving us money is less cereal. Yeah. But, but then the kids wanted the prizes, which no one had done yet. And we're doing that. But at the time, before he even started, there was a lot of cereal companies that were taking these ideas and trying to put them out there. A lot of them went out of business. A lot of them were crappy. They weren't sustaining in the box like they went bad. Or uh, in that movie, they showed how people were trying to get in on the cereal company. There was a lot of them. So uh, Will was able to put himself apart. And when his brother started doing cereal too, he started doing the campaign as I, this is the original, make sure my signature is on this box or else it's not the original Kellogg's. And that's his brother was putting his name. He's like, well, that's my name too. And so after a while, Will finally sued his brother and the lawsuit went on for 10 years and ended up going to Supreme court because Dr. Kellogg tried to appeal it, but he ended up winning and, John kind of had to cease and desist with putting his name on this box and whatever. And even though Will, I mean, even though Dr. Kellogg had his company, Will's was making millions of dollars. So he 
and he never stopped making money. Even in the depression, he was still making money because it was a food product and people were still trying to buy, you know, still wanted their cereal for if they could afford it. But he was such a good manager that he was able to make shifts shorter and rotate them so that people didn't, he didn't have to lay anybody off. So he was really good at managing. He was really good at marketing and that's why the company did so well. And he learned all these things when he was at the Sands. Like he really was, that was like job chaining for him. And so he went from making crappy money to being this multimillionaire. He um, also gave to charity. He loved, he wanted other children to learn to play. So he gave a lot of money to children, but there was just fighting going on and the whole like lawsuits and everything for like the rest of their lives. And sometimes Will would go, yeah, there, there was multiple lawsuits against each other. They were constantly, and I'm not even going into all of that. There was so much and they would sue other people and they would sue each other. And, and they like, Will would try to talk to him about certain things. And I mean, they just didn't get along, but at some point, John wrote a letter to Will towards the end of his life, apologizing for the way he'd been. But Will and he and Will never wrote back, but he didn't know that Will never got the letter. The secretary didn't want Will to mm -hmm. know that he his mind was diminishing. And so she never sent it, or he never sent it, whatever the secretary's sex was. And so Will didn't get it till way after Dr. Kellogg died. And I don't know how he felt at that point, like, you know, felt bad that here here he apologized, but then didn't know. It was really sad. Right. The Sands didn't do very well after the Great Depression. The year before the Sands was uh, was expanded to this huge, large tower. But then the Depression happened the next year, and then people couldn't, they couldn't afford to fill those rooms. I think there was like 1,300 rooms at that point. So there was a lot of layoffs. There was pay cuts. There was just poor morale overall. And it's really sad because it reminds me of COVID because right now, this year with us having this happen, and it happened so quickly that when you did this lockdown thing and all of a sudden, you know, we were in, we were in Reno, right? You know, they're shutting down all the casinos. It goes very quickly like, okay, we'll be okay for a little while, yeah. but even the casinos are going to lose money and there's a lot of people that need jobs. Mm -hmm. And my cousin worked for the Marriott and she, she got furloughed, but at some point she still like, we're, we're at the end of the year. She still doesn't have her job back. So I feel like this depression hit people really hard. And, and so yeah. it kind of reminds me of that. Like you don't know when it's going to happen and, and making those decisions like to expand in a new tower makes you feel really sad, but they, it ended up being turned into a VA hospital. And then there was, um, I mean, it kept changing hands. He couldn't afford to pay off all these loans and the, there was buildings that were used still for the sanitarium, but they, it, it, it eventually ended up being a, another hospital. Um, and then later on, Dr. Kellogg opened up a smaller sanitarium in Miami. He had visited there when he got sick and he got the, 
he got the sanitarium there for a really cheap price. That was like in 1930, a year after the depression. So he, he started doing that too. Um, and treating patients there as well. And Dr. Kellogg ended up with Bell's palsy. And then he just kind of got out of the limelight because then he was like, had the slurry balls. Bell's palsy is kind of like a, it looks like a stroke where, you know, half the face is kind of droopy, right? I know, you know, but people listening might not know that. (laughs) Um, And so he ended up with that. And then he ended up dying in 1943 from pneumonia. Now, Will, he died at 91 as well, eight years later. Uh, He had a lot of medical problems as well. He ended up with severe anemia and uh, that required infusions. He almost went blind. Um, And then he, he ironically died at his enemy's hospital. His, I guess the post company had a hospital that was named after post's wife, Leah, Leela, Layla, (laughs) Layla post hospital. And that's where he died. Isn't that awful? Like he died in his enemy. But Will, yeah. <laughs> Will was this guy. He was very more serious. I think for him, he was just very expected a lot. He was a perfectionist. He didn't get along with his family a lot. He was. He ended up becoming not very close with anybody. Like one of his sons ended up he tried to help him with the business. It just wasn't working out. Uh, his grandson, he was trying to get him groomed for the business. His grandson, I think it was too much too fast because he made him part of the board too quickly. Like usually if you're going to start off in a family business, you start from the, like he started off making brooms. You don't put him in management right away. You got to build yourself up. Well, he didn't do that with his grandson. He kind of went too fast. His grandson, his grandson had a lot of problems. It it was a lot of stress. He ended up committing suicide at some point. And I'm not sure the exact reason, but it didn't work out as far as the business side. Will had hired all these different people to run the business, but he was never satisfied. It just, they just didn't run him like run it like he did. And he didn't know how to let go. So it took him a really long time to retire. If you're a perfectionist, no one's going to do it like you do it. Just like with Dr. Kellogg, I mean, he took over surgeries because no one was doing it like he was doing it. And so I think in their way, both brothers were very, were perfectionists in their own field, but and never satisfied. And again, them fighting all the time, I think made them want to be better and have more. Because like I said, Dr. Kellogg didn't even care about selling cereal until Will was making millions of dollars. So here his little mm-hmm. wimpy lackey brother was doing better than he was. And it, there's a lot. I mean, <laughs> there was, there's a lot of lawsuits. There's a lot of um, one of Will's factories. His first factory got burnt down. So he became very suspicious. <laughs> he, you know, <laughs> yeah. that was, that was a thing. There's a lot. There's so much to their story that I hope people, if they're interested, go and read the book. Because it really yeah. is kind of fascinating. I think the first 90 pages, maybe not that many, was just the family life 
as children, they're very interesting. And Dr. Kellogg is just in his own way, very interesting guy. As you could see in the movie, like uh, Anthony Hopkins did a really good job of portraying him. I mean, yeah, I would really, I would really recommend that movie if you want to learn yeah. more about the. And, <laughs> yeah. So there, okay. So there is sex involved in the movie and nudity, but other than that, the Victorian age where people were saying it was dirty, but at the same time it wasn't right. Cause it's, it's healthy, right. but in that movie, I mean, it's a movie there. And I sat down and I watched it a couple weeks ago with my folks and I had forgotten cause it's a nineties movie that there was so much nudity mm-hmm. and sex. So that was a little, that was a little uncomfortable, but <laughs> the way that it was and the treatments and the, what that's how it was. That this that was the sands. There was one person I don't know. You might have mentioned it, but I can't remember. Doctor Spitzvogel. Oh, was that the, the massage, yeah. massage therapist? There, there I, were at the time those kinds of doctors. <laughs> I didn't do research on it, but that was a thing at that time because mm-hmm. that was a therapy that I wouldn't say treated hysteria. But in a way it did. It was like having this frustration. So let's let it go and you'll feel better. Right? Have an orgasm. You'll feel better. Right. Helping right. them have an orgasm, which I feel like in a way was just for yes. him as yeah. to get into women's right. pants. But it was a thing though. It really was. They, they really did have those kind yeah. of therapists back then as well. And, and and definitely Dr. Kellogg did not approve of that at all. Yes. Yeah. He <laughs> yeah, was right. very, with what he believed, he was very adamant about it and was constantly lecturing. I, I forgot to, I was going to look and see how many books he actually wrote, but there was a lot and he made a lot of money off of it too. Anything else you found interesting? Had you ever heard of Dr. Kellogg before? Oh. You know, honestly, I did not. I didn't know he was an actual, an actual person. <laughs> doc- yeah, an actual doctor. And like, I knew about the Kellogg brothers, but I didn't really realize he was an actual physician. Yeah, and, in his own. Um, I didn't know. I didn't know about the Sands. I didn't know he did all that. And it was just watching the movie was interesting on some of the therapies that they had him do. Or like when he was being interviewed by the press and he was sitting in like, this chair going around in a circle with his feet and tubs of water, and he's like doing this exercise with his arms. I'm like, what? Are you, what's the point? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. It was it, it was just so interesting, and it's funny because he kept saying he was gonna uh, live to a hundred, but he I mean, obviously he didn't. But in the movie, like they tried, they put a lot, kind of like I did, condensed everything into one, all the expansions into one mm-hmm. thing, but. In the movie, they had him, the wife, she brought her husband there because he was ill. And he had, remember, he had a surgery. And I don't know what surgery he had because it didn't talk about it in the movie. Like, he didn't. But the wife brought him there because he was ill. And she was, like, on a vacation. Right. She she was enjoying the spa-like treatment. But that's what they did. They would come in, have the surgeries. Like It was a hospital. It was an actual real hospital where he was fixing and he did see a lot of his own patients. This guy, I'm like, I'm telling you 
These brothers did not sleep. They were busy all the time. Makes you want to go have some cornflakes, huh? Yeah, right. <laughs> Makes frosted. Some frosted That's flakes. the way to go. I, <laughs> I'm, um, I'm, I'm a sugar I was, person. You know so. what? It took me. I, I ate. I ate some, and then I was like, "This is good." I forgot how good <laughs> frosted flakes were, and because I don't eat, I don't eat cereal anymore. I I don't actually eat a lot of uh, grains anymore. I don't eat corn. I think the only bland cereal like is Special K oh, with yeah. no flavors, just the original. That was another K. thing that Dr. Kellogg was changed it to from corn to grain or something, and he's like, "Well, see how it's different." Well, mm -hmm. you still can't put your name on the box, like. like <laughs> so, but yeah, so he tried to change the formula, and they did do some. He did do some other stuff that was like they made other types of cereals and formulas and they did. I mean, there's the special K that was special because it was supposed to be even more, even better for you and that kind of thing. But <laughs> um, special K is good. I like it with the strawberries, but they didn't add sugar to anything. And like I said, until Will was, was gone because they really didn't want to, mm -hmm. uh, he didn't want to. You know what? Yeah, it makes sense. And then, of course, the the cereal industry is now being blamed for a lot of the obesity in in children because of all the sugar. A lot yeah. of sugar. <laughs> yeah, but that's the kind you like, like Captain Crunch or uh, Count Dracula or um, what other cereal? Are those those are probably post cereals to you? I don't know. Cinnamon toast crunch. I don't. Cinnamon, I don't yeah, even know. I, honestly, <laughs> I know they're so, and they're all sugary, and yeah, like I think Reese's peanut butter cup, and then there's, I mean, there's so many sugary. But we don't have to eat a sugar. I mean, Cheerios. You can't and, have, I like. I like honey like nut Cheerios. Those are yummy. Mm -hmm. But again, like if it was just Cheerios, I'm like, oh no, I gotta add some sugar to it, because then then you're useless. <laughs> But at least I, I was telling my mom this not too long ago. At least you could control the sugar you put on it. So if you if you just sprinkle right. a little bit on it, that's way better than how much sugar is really in a box of Frosted Flakes. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's not good for you. But it is delicious. Mm -hmm. Anyway, well, thank you for being on this episode with me. Yes, again. thank you. And I recommend to everybody watch the movie Road <laughs> oh, to Wellville. Road to Wellville, even though it's older. I, I mean, it was per, it was it was interesting, and I enjoyed yeah, it. I don't want to read the book, but um, definitely do both. Mm -hmm. I, I was I meant to say this: the Road to Wellville was actually a ad campaign for the Post cereal. Yes, really. That it's kind of crappy that they made a movie called Road to Wellville using someone else's. It's kind of funny that they did that, though. Maybe they did that on purpose to, like... Is, I know yeah. they did it on purpose, and I'm sure they knew yeah. that was a post-serial thing. But The Road to Belleville, yeah, was a post-advertisement. I don't think it's that. It's not as popular of a movie because there was only about 800 reviews There's, of it on... It's not. I remember watching but. it, and I thought it was funny. Dana Carvey mm -hmm. is hilarious, and... But there's some good acting. There's like yeah. a good cast in it. And when I when I kept on like when I when I saw Matthew Broderick, yeah. like 
Broderick, right? Yeah. <laughs> when I saw him and then and then you said, Oh yeah, Anthony Hopkins is in it. Yeah. I was like, Yeah. What? And he did and, <laughs> he, like, good and they did a good job. I thought the movie did an excellent job. It's kind of a weird movie, but I think it's because of the concept of it. And it kind of throws you in after Will had already left. Um, okay, yeah. Because they did say at one point, well, what do you think of your brother taking this the cereal and the recipe and leaving? And at that point, he was like, ah, whatever. He did have a son named George, but his son wasn't like quite yeah. like that. He was special. I was going to say, movie made really, him yeah. very... He was special, but he... But he Very wasn't odd. like that. And he also did not start the fire. Nobody actually knows who okay. started the fire. Some people think it was the whites who, because she said mm-hmm. that, that, the, that Dr. Kellogg's san, the sanitarium was going to go down in flames or whatever. So it could have been one of her disciples that kind of like started that fire. Not sure. Yeah. Did they see who actually like tried to steal the cornflake formula? Cause I know John, Okay, post. I was like, John Cusack plays a and fictional there was character a company, who was I think actually, he called it Parvo. There but, was a company that was named that. And there was, uh-huh. Oh, there was. And there was another like, company that was called Maple something. And they went out of business. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the building that Will ended up buying. So there was people that were coming mm-hmm. and starting these cereal companies. There were like so many of them. And, and so then, of mm-hmm. course, when they went belly up they um, had empty factories. There was a lot of thievery going on. And that was, that was the other thing is they, they ended up signing contracts saying don't steal or don't give. So yeah, it was a real thing (laughs) that, that I think that really made Will paranoid. I would say it reminds me of a SpongeBob episode. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to steal the Krabby Patty formula. (laughs) Everybody wants the Krabby Patty formula. You know, I didn't, I've never seen that movie until my mom was watching it. <laughs> yes. Really? My 60 something year old mom was watching it while she's painting and I thought it was pretty funny. So then I started watching it. But yeah, my mom introduced me to this mom. <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, thanks everybody for listening and thanks, Taylor, for being here again. And hope you enjoyed it. Thank you. We'll catch you next time. I hope you enjoyed today's mental vacation from your current life. If you did and are curious for more, please subscribe. Before you go, if you have anything to add to today's show or you have a topic that you think is worthy of dissection, please reach out on dissectingmedicalhistory.com or Instagram on Dissecting Medical History. Thank you, and stay curious.